Good morning. Last night there was a guy up here, up front here, and he goes, "I was that kid. He said, that was definitely me." You know. How about your self-image? What's your self-image like? Too big? Too small? Too bad? Too good? To whatever, you know, we tend to get these images in our mind, in our heart. Sometimes built on circumstances, family background, color of your skin, heritage, all kinds of different things. And often they're like false narratives. It's not the truth, especially when you become a believer, as you're going to learn today. I was reading an article a while ago about a guy that went to Hong Kong. And I was paying attention because my, uh, my brother-in-law is from Hong Kong. He grew up as a missionary kid in Hong Kong. He married my sister. And he's told me some things like Hong Kong sounds like just a massive amount of sky rises and people all pushed together. <laughs> he lives in Montana now. Anyway. So I started reading this article and this guy's talking about, I think it's the town called Victoria in, in Hong Kong. And he's walking through the streets and he comes across a tattoo parlor. And he looks on the window of the tattoo parlor. And you know how they advertise the tattoos. And one of the tattoos is Born to Lose. And he thinks, wait a minute, who in the world puts born to lose on their body? Like, why would you put that on your chest or your arm? Born to lose. Like, why would you want that, you know? So the man that owned the tattoo parlors leaned up against the doorway there, and he, so he just turns to the Chinese guy, and he says, hey, have you ever done that tattoo on somebody? You know, uh, and in his broken English, the man says, yes, some. And so he thinks for a second, and he goes, Why? Why would someone put born to lose on their body? He asked the tattoo artist. And the tattoo artist responds back to him in broken English. Before tattoo on body, tattoo on mind. He's so right, isn't he? And the scriptures reveal so clearly. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but isn't that what most of the Bible's about, especially getting into the New Testament, is telling us you can change the tattoo on your mind and then change the tattoo on your body. You can literally change what you're like. I put it down what's called the, the big idea of the sermon. Rethink who you are. Rethinking who you are can change what you're like. There really is hope of changing. Isn't that why we have the New Testament? Paul's trying to help people change, saying, but where you're going to start from is your thinking. Because tattoo on the mind is what ends up in tattoo on the body or on the life. It's really, really true. There's hope. You can change. You don't like your self-image? Great, you can change. You see things in yourself that aren't good or aren't right or to this or to that? Good, you can change. At least you identified it. Now what you need to do is go into the scriptures and see what God says about what you're really like, who you really are, and let God change you. And so what I want to do before we look at this passage, because Ephesians 2 is all about this. Paul's writing to these people, trying to say, and he's writing to a bunch of Gentiles, like probably most of us in this room, and he's saying, you guys, you know, you know who you are? Do you know what's happened to you? Do you know what you become? He's trying to get them to rethink. So, before we even start, let me just pray with you that God would help you and help me do this. So, let's pray. Lord, we need to rethink some things about our our self-image. We need to rethink some things about how we look at life and ourself and other people and you. It's very clear, and many of us sense this and know this in many ways in our life, just like that video showed. And I pray you'll help us 
spend a few moments here rethinking. Often, we don't change because we don't take time to rethink. And we need your help. We're literally incapable of it without the power of the Word of God. So, would the power of the Spirit and the power of the Word work right here, right now, in people's minds and hearts? Helping us think. Please lead our thinking now. Please guide us by your Spirit as we try and think these things through. In Jesus' name, amen. So what I did in Ephesians 2, like starting halfway through the, the chapter and going to the end, I put it into three points. The first point is like this. First point is rethink where you came from. Where did I put my glasses? I don't see them. Did they fall off somewhere? I got another one. I got spares just in case. So let's read it. Ready? Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 through 12. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. You know, that's a Jewish practice, circumcision. And which is made in the flesh by hands. Now remember that you were at that time separated from Christ because you weren't a Jew, you weren't involved in the Jewish heritage, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He starts out with this word, therefore. Now, whenever you see the word, therefore, you have to go back behind it and see, well, he's making, that's a concluding statement, right? You're concluding what? Well, on the basis of... Like chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, as a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest no man should boast. And were his workmanship created in, in Christ Jesus for good works, verse 10. But the whole idea is, do you catch what he's saying here? He's, he's telling us, therefore, and he tells us about all these differences between Jews and Gentiles. He's saying, but before he says that, he says this, what? Hey, we're all saved by grace. It's through faith in God's goodness to us to give us Jesus Christ as our sacrifice for our sins that any of us are saved. It's not by good works. It's a gift of God. Do you understand what that means? If it's not by good works, then no one works better than someone else. You can't make measurements. You can't compare yourself, which is what self-image is often based on, right? The idea that you're better or you're worse or he's better or he's worse has nothing to do with it, he says. For by grace you've been saved through faith. You're all sinners. From God's perspective, nobody's better than anybody else. You're all just a bunch of sinners. (laughs) And it's only by God's goodness that any of you even get a chance to approach me or come to heaven. It's only by God's grace giving us Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for our sins. We put our faith in Christ for our salvation. That's it. And then God uses us as his workmen, verse 10. But the whole point is based on that. So he says, therefore, because of that truth, look what he says. Therefore, remember this. And he's telling, reminding them of all the different prejudices. Did you catch that? Remember the prejudices? You, you remember that, that you were separated from, from, from the commonwealth, you're aliens, you're strangers. He uses those key words. Did you know... If you were a Jew, back in the biblical times here, it was uh, considered unlawful for you to even help a woman if she was a Gentile and she's trying to give birth. Let's say you're another woman. You're not supposed to help her. That would make you unclean and that's unlawful. Wow, talk about separation. Did you know it was unlawful if you were a Jew to marry a Gentile? 
Like your son, your daughter falls in love, in love with some Gentile. It's like, no, you can't marry her. Like she's, she's only a Gentile. Whoa. And he's saying, remember that. That's you Gentiles. That's your, so he's talking about what? Their self-image. He says, remember that, you know, like if you even went to the house of a friend that was a Gentile, it would be wrong for you to go in. That would make you unclean. So he's talking about what? Prejudice. Bigotry. And the Jews had developed it not only from the Old Testament law, but even developed it further because they were misreading some of the Old Testament, not understanding it. In fact, if we read on here, he talks about, our, our, um, like I said, uh, the prejudices. And then he says, there's, for next verse, there, you had no hope in the world and you were without God. You see, the Jews felt like... Even if things went bad in this life, they had a hope for a life to come, right? Even in the Old Testament. But a Gentile, like you read some of the ancient Greek writings, they saw life like a cyclical thing. They didn't have hope of eternal life. And in fact, there was a lot of prejudices among them. The normal Greek saw other people from other backgrounds and other ethnic places as being barbarians. They're just barbarians. And they were very prejudiced about them. So it wasn't just Jew and Gentile. There's all, the ancient world was full of bigotry, full of prejudice. And Paul's saying, and remember when you felt it? You were at the bottom of the pile. You were considered barbarians by the, by the, by the Greeks. And you were considered you were without hope in the world. You're godless people. And even the Jews, they wouldn't associate with you or marry with you or hang out with you or even go to your house because it would make them unclean. Remember the prejudice against you? And what did he just get done saying? For my grace you're saved through faith. You're all just a bunch of sinners. Those people who think they're so great, those people who don't think they're so great, doesn't matter, he's saying. It's a level ground now because you're in Christ. Remember the whole book of Ephesians is about two words, in Christ. In Christ, the ground has been leveled. That's the point he's going to make as we can read on a little further. But you can see right here, poor Gentile, like you and probably most of us in this room feel, you were nothing. Um... Look at verse 14. Let's skip ahead just a minute. We'll come read this again later. But in verse 14, he calls it the dividing wall. For he himself is our peace, that's talking about Christ, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh by dying on the cross the dividing wall of hostility. That's a reference to the Jewish temple. You walked into the temple mount, you walked into the temple grounds, and there were courtyards. The first courtyard is the courtyard of the Gentiles. Yeah, you and me, we're not Jews, but we could still go to the temple if we wanted to worship Yahweh. But you couldn't go further than the court of the Gentiles. And there was this huge wall that separated all the rest of the courts. Because after that court of the Gentiles, there's a court of women. Now you've got to be a Hebrew woman, but a woman. And then Israelites, and then priests. And finally you entered into a place called the holy place. God did these courtyards to show the holiness and the separateness of God. But the point is here that Paul's making is he broke down the wall of hostility. Who's the he? Jesus broke down the, the wall of hostility, this wall between the courts, especially from the Gentiles to the Jews. He broke it down? Yeah. He said, you're all sinners. Only saved because Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He's telling them to what? Rethink who you are. Jews are no better than you. 
Greeks are no better than you. Everybody's a sinner, and you're all just saved by grace through faith in Christ as your Savior. He's making that abundantly clear here. It's a powerful, powerful message. It's kind of like Jesus. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, let's put it on the screen. It reads like this. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion. Talking about Jesus, he had compassion on them because they were harassed, harassed by prejudices and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's why Jesus felt compassion. You know what? I think you and me need to get to that place where we see other people and we just... You know, oh, they're all stuck in some kind of sin or some kind of immorality or some kind that we literally feel bad for them. Like, oh, man, they're so stuck. They're so hung up. You know, I mean, we complain about other people and what they do. Maybe we should be feeling compassion for them. They're harassed like sheep without a shepherd. problem is sometimes even within the church we still have our prejudices don't we it's a human thing it's a sinful thing we just want to compare ourselves by ourselves or we harass each other in that sense I have a friend Cedric Brown he's pastor of a church down in Lindenwald maybe some of you remember he used to play for the Eagles a long time ago under Buddy Ryan he was a defensive back. He's now a pastor. He went to school after that. Became a pastor down in Linda Wall. He's got a great church. Good, good friend of mine. And um, he, t- he wrote a book called The Racial and Cultural Divide. Are We Still Prejudiced? He grew up in Compton, L.A. Tough spot. And by football, got his way out of there. And he wrote this at the beginning of his book. I want to read this to you. As Christians, we cannot forget that the mind of a holy and omniscient God is not as small and finite as ours. God does not only think in small pockets like we do in racial and cultural divisions and subdivisions. He thinks by county, by region, by countries, by nations. He thinks globally. He includes all races and cultures in the scheme of things, no matter one's race or culture, uh, which could be defined by one's skin color or place of origin or heritage or likes or dislikes. If we have acknowledged Jesus Christ as our, our Lord and as our risen Savior, we're family. We are sons and daughters of the same daddy. If this is biblically sound, like it says in Ephesians, like it teaches in the book of Galatians 4, 1 through 7, and he says, then this is what the body of Christ is. This is what a local church should look like. And often, this is what we're missing in our, no, our, in our local churches. Imagine this. All of us. We have missing brothers and sisters yet to be found. We've all gone astray. And Jesus looks at us all with compassion. So, you know, There are spiritual sons and daughters outside of our own race and culture yet to be birthed by all of us to help assemble his glorious church. But do we believe this is even possible? Can you see it? Can you envision with me a church, both locally and worldwide, that is so inviting to all races and every culture, a church that doesn't mask the wonderful cultural expressions that naturally flow out of one's love for a holy God? Can you see the assortment of people with dreadlocks and cufflinks and crew cuts and baggy pants and light and dark and medium complexion all around the throne, worshiping the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Can you imagine one day waking up to the realization this is no longer just a dream, it's your church. My hopeful desire 
is that by reading this book, you'll be encouraged. If you've been following the heart of God at all and remove any prejudices within your heart by rethinking, rethinking who you are. And if you are in cruise control, I thought that was a neat way of putting it. If you're in cruise control, whether you're in your own race and your own culture, just going along, I pray that you are challenged to action, spurred on to swiftly close the gap that divides the races and the cultures within the family of God. Here, Cedric, my friend, is saying, come on, we've got to rethink who we are. We've got to rethink, because sometimes we have these ideas, these misconceptions. They're not biblical at all. That's not at all what God wants. Because God says, you're all just a bunch of sinners, saved by grace. And the only reason you're even at church or even know the truth is because God gave you the gift of faith to trust him. Now, he says, remember that there were prejudices in your past, but you don't hold those anymore, right? Uh, I hope that's right. I hope we've thought deep enough to get a hold of that. That's life-changing. It really, really is. Secondly, look what he says. Rethink what God has done for you. In chapter 2, starting verse 13. Let's just read verse 13. It reads like this. He says, but now, big words. In other words, in contrast to these being alienated, feeling like a stranger and without God. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The but now, you're in Christ now. And the bo- you need to rethink that the both are now one in Christ. Look what, look what he goes on to say, next few verses, starting with verse 14, which we read once already. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments, expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself a new, uh, one new man in place of the two. So making peace and, and, and might reconcile, the word reconciles literally means to make peace, and, and, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, the body of Christ, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, that's us Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, that's the Jews, for though, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You know, that makes sense to me, except a couple of words. Abolishing the law? You mean you don't need any of the Old Testament anymore? It's it's abolished? Well, not exactly. In this context, he literally means abolishing the prejudices in the law. Not so much abolishing the law, because in some other passage of Scripture, he says he doesn't abolish the law, he fulfills the law. Let me show you a couple examples. And if we had time, I'd even teach more, but let me show you a couple examples. Luke 24, 27, talks about Jesus and says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that's Jesus, interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus went through the Old Testament and started showing these people how everything back in the Old Testament, there's many of the Psalms, many of the different places in the prophets, even back in Moses' writing, all refers to Jesus because the Old Testament is culminated in one man, Jesus Christ, and all leads up to that. It was been God's plan. It's been God's plan from the very beginning to bring Jesus. He didn't come to set up Israel as the exclusive 
tribe, that he, the only people that are going to be saved. No, that was just a stepping stone. God's explained that to lead to Christ, who would make everybody one in Christ. Look at another passage. Look at this makes it clear. If I had time, I'd show you more. In the book of Matthew, chapter 5, the great Sermon on the Mount, verses 17 and 18 say this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. Oh, oh really? So here it says he abolishes the law. He's saying, yeah, abolish the prejudice of it. But the law itself, or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Next verse. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, or not, 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 not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is saying, yeah, all of the Old Testament is going to be fulfilled, and all of it is fulfilled in me. In my first coming, my second coming, and what the church is going to do, it's all fulfilled. That's important for us to understand. Oh, found my gla- other glasses. They're under my Bible. <laughs> wow, isn't that mind-boggling? He fulfills the law, but abolishes the prejudices that grew out of the law by making the two parties reconciled in Christ. They made peace in Christ, were one. That's true almost about every prejudice we have. My struggle is how to make this real for you and me. And um, I was reminded of something I read in a book years ago, and I've even shared it in church before. I thought, okay, how do you rethink, like I put down here in point two, rethink what God's done for you? Because if I can really rethink what God's done for me in Jesus Christ, it'll change who I am or what kind of person I am. I thought, well, what if I used the illustration of one of the most famous people, maybe the most famous people the planet Earth has ever seen? Because a few years ago, they used to claim that about Billy Graham, that his name was more recognizable in the world than any other human that walked the planet. You know, recently just passed away. So I took this old book off the shelf that I read years ago. It's called The Leadership Secrets of Billy Graham. And they really do share some secrets in here. And one of them, I've shared with you before, and bear with me if you've heard this before, but the application is absolutely phenomenal. It says, in our research about Billy, it's in chapter 6, we came up with a remarkable uh, understanding we didn't know before. His family referred to Billy as Puddle Glum. Puddle Glum? When we first read that fact and learned that from his friends and relatives and the people in his organization, we were puzzled. Puddle Glum is the character in C.S. Lewis's book series, The Chronicles of Narnia. A dour marsh wiggle. Puddle Glum is a brave but glum creature always expecting the worst. When he says, good morning to the children in Narnia, he immediately adds these words. Though, when I say good, I don't mean it'll necessarily be that good. And it may not rain, and it might not have, it might snow, and it might be fog, and it might be thunder. The, the marsh wiggle always talks about what could go wrong, and how many difficulties, and, 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 and reversals, and, and, and things that might go bad. Billy's family uses the nickname Puddleglum for him with humor and affection. But how could that possibly fit? You mean Billy Graham is a pessimist? Yes, that's what his sisters say. That's what his friends say. Well, yeah, but I thought he's like this big evangelist preaching about Jesus. Listen to what they say. 
I see some pessimists out there smiling like, see, I told you I was right. <laughs> anyway, most of us sensing a rightness about Billy being chosen as, and, as, and often called the most admired and dearly beloved evangelist would never dream of his nickname being Puddleglum. His family and, 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 and closest friends saw a side that the public didn't see, a dubious, pessimistic tendency. Billy's wife, Ruth Graham, said this. Billy has a boundless capacity for seeing the grim side of everything, every situation. She tells the story of how Billy cautioned her with an endless number of problems she might face on her flight from Miami through Atlanta to Asheville. It, she goes on to say, it's just that his natural mindset is, well, what could go wrong? Remember, he was a kid of the Depression. His father was a farmer and worried like this all the time. His sister tells him, Billy's always been like that. We've long been intrigued by this paradox, the authors of this book say. Can a natural pessimist be ultimately an optimist, even though it strains his nature? One thing is clear. Billy Graham has plenty of reason to see the dark side of things. But... He was determined, key word there, he was determined to live by his convictions and the hope that's in the gospel. Do you get it? Do you get it? God made Billy Graham a pessimist so he could see all the potential problems, all the things that go wrong, all the problems in the world, all the problems in people's life, the psychological problems, the emotional problems, the problems with po political problems, the war problems, the disease problems, and he could go, you know, it's all going to hell. Only hope is Jesus. This is why he could talk like this. This is what happened to him. He would emphasize the truth about what God did through Jesus Christ for you because he really believed it's the only hope. And he was dead right. But for Billy, personally, it took what? Rethinking. And it's the same with you, especially when you're depressed, especially when you're down, especially when you have a bad self-image, especially when you're down on yourself and complaining about everybody else. The problem is you need to rethink. You're not thinking what God says about you. You're thinking what others say. You're thinking what you say. You're thinking what prejudice says. You're not thinking biblically. And it's so cool to think, wow, look what happened with one man's life when he started thinking about what God says about him. Puddle glum. And maybe you're kind of a puddle glum person. Well, that's not all bad. God could use that. Point three. Rethink who you are with. This is really good. He goes on, starting with verse 19, says this. So then, here's his conclusion. You're no longer strangers. You're no longer aliens. But you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Don't forget that. You're in the household of God now, he says. You're not outside anymore. You're not separated. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Let's stop right there a minute. The word household, words, household of God, uh, is like a technical term here. And it literally means your place has been changed. This is, in, in scriptural language, this is a big deal. You're now in the household of God. 
And he says, it's built together with a foundation. And what holds up the foundation? He says, two things, the apostles and the prophets. What's he, what's he trying to say? Well, who wrote the Old Testament? The prophets. Even Moses is called a prophet. Who wrote the New Testament? The apostles. He's saying, based on what God says about you and what God said, you're now in the household of God. But don't think of yourself any other way. You're in the household of God now. And I can say that, he says, on the basis of two foundations, the apostles, the prophets, the Old Testament, the New Testament. This is what God says about us. He says, so you need to rethink this and rethink who you are, why you're here. You're now part of the household of God. Now, this is really simple for you, but yet really profound. You're not just an individual anymore. This, this kind of talk is almost anti-American because us Americans think our, we're so independent, we're so much about us, we're so much about ourselves, about where we live and who we are, that we don't think of ourselves as part of anything. We're part of us. We do what we want. And he's saying, no, you're not. That's a fantasy. The truth is, you're part of the household of God now, built on the apostles and the prophets. That's what's happened. And then he says this. Really? Ready? Look at the last part. In whom, verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. It says, in other words, the Old Testament temple, that's gone with all those courtyards. Now you're one temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. Now, your natural tendency, your what the Bible calls flesh, your sinful human nature, and the devil himself wants you to be separate, wants you to be independent, wants you to be prejudiced, wants you to be critical, wants you to be unkind, wants you to be self-centered. That's what the enemy wants for you. That's what your own human nature wants for you. A ferocious, private independence. And that, my friend, is sin. That's wrong. That's not who you are. That's a lie from the pit. You're part of the household of God. Why are you acting like it's your thing? It's not yours, it's his. This is the disease of the American church. It's the epidemic destroying the American church. Our simple, selfish independence. So, no better illustration than me. Because I was so selfish and so independent when God found me. I was this kid that, like, nobody had the right to tell me what to do or to, because everything, okay, for example, so I'm like 19, 18, 19 years old, and everything was about my job, my girlfriend, my friends, my enemies, my school, my job, again, and, and my car, and my comforts, and my things, and my business, and what I want to do. Then I become a born-again Christian, accept Christ as my Savior and Lord. I'm changed from being my person to now being in the household of God. And what happened to me, folks, I kid you not, I took this seriously. Remember I told you the book of Ephesians changed my life? And I started to experience something I'd never experienced before. I experienced community. I experienced togetherness. I experienced what the Bible calls fellowship, koinonia. I had never experienced that before. Oh, I had a lot of friends. I did a lot of cool stuff. I, thought, I was having lots of fun, I thought. 
but I didn't know what life was like together because I'm a typical American. <laughs> I, I had no concept. In the household of God, I let other people help me with decisions. I make decisions together with others. We work together on things. And so as I start growing in the Lord and I start going to church and experiencing this, it's a little awkward, it's a little weird, right? Then I got involved in the ministry, which was a coffee house we ran for kids, right? High school and college kids. Every Friday night, working together, planning together, coordinating together, teaching. Every Friday night, instead of Friday nights, we used to be running and chasing. Now Friday nights, I'm trying to have a ministry with a bunch of other kids, reaching kids for Christ. It was unbelievable joy, unbelievable fulfillment. Nobody paid us a dime. None of us got paid anything. We did it for pure pleasure, the pleasure of community, the pleasure of the household of God, the pleasure of being together with somebody making an impact. Oh, man, I was sold. I was just like so into this. I started experiencing what I'm afraid many people in churches around America have never experienced, true community. It's why our church is divided into all these small groups called fellowship groups and men's and women's and many church. So you can experience what the Bible's teaching here. You're, you're in the household of God. And you can experience... Do you understand? When you became a believer, nobody's a believer by themselves. It doesn't work. You, you won't learn. I remember one time, even when I was in seminary, I'd already go through Bible college. I'm in seminary now. And I remember it dawning on me one day when I was at church in a small group. I'm with some of these greatest Bible teachers in the world. I'm learning Greek and Hebrew and all this crazy stuff. And I'm in a group, and this guy, George, shares some things. George is just a salesman, doesn't know zip compared to what I already know, and I'm just starting seminary. But he shares something so powerful, it changes my life, and I realize, whoa, I can't learn. I can't understand. I can't see what I need to see with just me, my Bible, and the best scholars in the world. I need fellowship with George all of a sudden raised everybody's opinion in my mind. My prejudice for my own ego had gone away and realized, wow, I need George. I mean, the scholars, the knowledge, it wasn't enough. It's not enough for you either. We need community, togetherness, fellowship. That's what we're supposed to have in Christ. That's what he's trying to teach these Ephesian people, trying to teach us as well. So I made some decisions in my life. I decided I needed to be open to everybody. An open-hearted person. Not just a private person. I'm going to open up my life to others. And one verse impacted me powerfully to teach me that. It's 1 John 1, 7. Let's put it on the screen. But if we walk in the light, walking in the light means you expose things. As he is in the light, like God's in the light, Jesus is in the light, we have fellowship. That's where this togetherness comes from, fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. And all of a sudden started dawning on me, this is where it's at. Walking in the light, experiencing life together, being in the household of God is an experience I, I hadn't learned. I didn't know, and I'd grown up in church, and I still didn't know it. Because many people in church don't know it. They don't live it. They don't experience it. But I could, and I started feeling that I needed to go there. So I made a decision. My second decision, I decided I want community. I want togetherness so bad, I want it more than I want money. 
now in the family I grew up in, and the abilities I already had, and had a little business and stuff like that, I already knew how to make money. But I consciously decided, well, I'm going to go to seminary, I'm going to go to school, I'm going to learn this stuff, I'm going to be involved in church and give my life to this because it's more important than having money. And I still feel that way. Oh, I much rather have friends than money. Anybody else agree with that? I, I'd rather be dead poor, have some friends, than be rich and have no friends. And often, because you have to invest so much time and energy into having money, you don't have much time for friends. And so I consciously decided, no, this is my college years. I said, no, I don't want money. Yeah, I know how to make money. I really believe I can know how to go get it. But I want fellowship. I want community. I want the household of God. That's what I want. Are you there yet? Have you ever said this statement? I have before. Working with people, being involved with people, maybe in your small group, a friend, or maybe a relative, and you think, you know, some people never change. You ever said that? Someone's smiling right now. I see you. Oh, I've said that before. Ah, some people never change. You know what? That's true. Why? Why don't they change? They refuse to rethink. Is that you? Will you rethink? Like I said here in the outline, will you rethink where you came from? Will you rethink what God's done for you? Or will you rethink who you're with? If you won't rethink, I'm telling you right now, your hope of changing is zip, zero. You, the guy, the old Chinese guy was right. Before tattoo on the body, tattoo on the mind. You got to change your mind. You got to change your thinking. That's what's wrong with your behavior, your attitudes, your feel. You want to change what you're like? Change your thinking. And right here's the challenge. Paul's just laying that out to the church. God's laying it out to you. And what I'd like to do to end this service is pray with you, like I did at the beginning, that God would help you rethink and that you join the rest of us in this 90-day challenge to say, you know, I'm going to read this book of Ephesians and rethink my life. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you asking forgiveness. Oh, I sure do. I get so prejudiced sometimes, so arrogant sometimes, foolish sometimes. Looking at other people, kind of elevating myself, saying, well, at least I'm not like that, you know. Like, Lord, I'm so sorry. I get so twisted. Even us in the church, Lord, we get so twisted. Paul's writing to a church here. We're twisted like them. Please forgive me. Please forgive them. Please forgive us for the ways we're not the family of God, the household of God. We're so darn independent. Lord, forgive us. And help us realize that alone we're not worth much. To remember the prayers of Jesus, that we would be one, that we would be unified. Help us do that. Literally do that. But that's going to take some changing in our thinking. You can't just change behavior. We've got to change our mind. And only you can do it, Lord. So we come before you asking forgiveness and begging you, please help us as all of us who are starting to read the book of Ephesians now, starting to pray through in our life, and we want to see change. Well, God, we're going to have to rethink. And, and, and many times we're incapable or we don't even know. We don't even see the problem. Show us the problem. Show us the thinking that needs to change. Enlighten us. Fill us with your spirit and help us change, Lord. I pray that for everybody here. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a good week. I'll see you next week.